Hello everyone and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series on women and leadership. I'm Ilana Betel, I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are helping to advance our organization's goals of empowering women in the fields of peace, security, defense, and leadership. The war in Ukraine continues to dominate the news, at least in Europe, though its effects on energy and food prices continue to be felt around the world. And while Western states seek to deal with the political fallout, it's the states surrounding Ukraine and Russia that feel the effects most strongly. To gain this perspective and understand the immediate impact of the war, we have with us two excellent parliamentarians. Salome Samadashvili, Member of Parliament for the Opposition in Georgia and former Ambassador to the European Union. Alongside her, we have Dovili Shakaliena, Member of Parliament of the Lithuanian Republic and a member of the National Security and Defence Committee. Welcome, ladies. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today. And as ever, we are going to start with introductions with each of you telling us a little about yourself. Salome. Thank you for your invitation. Um, I'm Salma Samadashvili. I'm a member of the Parliament of Georgia. I'm from the opposition party Lelo for Georgia. I'm political secretary of the party as well. This is my second term in the parliament. I was member of the parliament from 2016 to 2020. And before that, for um, almost nine years, I was head of Georgia's mission to the European Union between 2005 and 2013. I have also worked at various times in international organizations, including uh, briefly in a hotspot like uh, Libya, uh, when I was um, interim resident director for governance for NDI's uh, program in Libya. Uh, I'm from Georgia, but I have uh, lived abroad um, for a long time. Uh, I was educated in the United States and in Europe. And uh, in addition to my political work, I'm also pursuing uh, academic uh, activities. I teach at the University of Georgia, and I'm hopefully finishing soon my PhD, actually focusing on the EU's uh, security and defense policy. That's very, very ambitious, but it's clearly very suited to a woman who's achieved so much. Thank you, Salome. Thank you. Uh, so hello ladies and hello everyone who is listening and it's actually a pleasure and an honor to be here and I'm very impressed uh, by Salome's bio, especially knowing the geopolitical situation and also I suspect still a lot of signs of patriarchal culture which is probably still happening in uh, both our countries. So I am member of my parliament also the second term. It's actually quite unexpected for me because I was working uh, most of my life in human rights. I was CEO of Human Rights Monitoring Institute, also uh, managing director of uh, NGO program for Lithuania for EEA uh, grants, but and also a journalist for Lithuanian news radio and for the largest news portal Delphi in Lithuania, accredited uh, at the Council of Europe. And I was teaching at university and when I uh, was diagnosed with cancer in 2015, I realized that I don't know how much time I have. And uh, one of the main missions of my life was uh, violence prevention. So I just wanted to finally implement child rights protection reform to ban all forms of uh, 
child abuse, physical, sexual, psychological, and child neglect, because only physical and sexual were prohibited before in our laws. And I'm very happy because it was successful. Uh, in the first, uh, probably a year and a half, I completed that. And then I went to my second uh, passion to national security and defense. And I'm from family of political prisoners and exiles. So we have learned very hard way. What does it mean to live next to genocidal imperialistic regime? And if we want to protect our democracy and human rights and freedoms, we must ensure that we are protected and we are defended and that we are secure. So I'm a member of National Security and Defense Committee, but I am also a vice president of Lithuanian Social Democratic Party responsible for defense and human rights. And I am chair of the in-party defense committee. Uh, that means automatically that I am a shadow defense minister for social democrats. Actually, I'm also very proud to be sanctioned by the People's Republic of China because I'm one of the co-founders and co-chairs of Interparliamentary Alliance on China. And my resolution on acknowledging Uyghur genocide uh, was probably what you know was cherry on top, what provoked uh, China to sanction me and my whole family, including my husband, who is a diplomat, and my son, who is a student. And also, um, I started talking about that um, only recently. I think that not only uh, gender inequality, but also stigma of neurodiversity is still very, very vital to making certain decisions about women's positions in politics. But I'm getting uh, more and more brave on that. I'm in the autism spectrum. I'm Asperger. And that means that I'm perfectionist. I'm very stubborn. And I'm very oriented towards goal. But uh, I am learning a lot. And I really am very happy to have a great team which supports me and which encourages me to go further. Well, that is an extremely impressive background, which in itself would lead to a wonderful conversation for an hour between the two of you, I'm sure. And may I just say that the patriarchy is not just a question of um, states around Russia or Ukraine. It exists strongly also in the West or Western Europe and uh, beyond. Um, but the subject we're talking about today is the Ukraine war and what it's like to live around Ukraine during this period. Salome, you, I know in Georgia, following the uh, decision of Putin to conscript uh, people in Russia, there's been a massive influx of uh, Russians into Georgia. Do you think that's going to continue? Will Georgia be able to sustain such a large amount of people? Thank you for your question. Uh, I will get to answer that. But uh, maybe first, I want to say um, that uh, I was Georgia's ambassador to the European Union in 2008. Russia invaded um, our country. And uh, now, especially from this, you know, point of view in history, when I look back, I can only once again, regret that uh, the world did not listen to us more carefully then, because um, uh, as you know uh, very well, and I think people who followed uh, the situation back in 2008, Georgia was very much advocating for a stronger response from the West. Uh, we were asking for sanctioning Russia, for basically taking the steps that would 
put pressure on Russia. Uh, and uh, quite honestly, we were warning uh, very often our counterparts that Ukraine could be the next. And back then, that seemed like kind of a science fiction, you know, scenario, Russia attacking Ukraine. Then, of course, this became very much a reality. I remember when some uh, quite high up officials were telling us that we were simply crazy for even suggesting that Russia might attack Ukraine one day. And look where we stand today. So it is unfortunate. I will be quite open and say that the world has wasted a number of years. Um, and honestly, I don't think in 2014, the response to Crimea uh, was adequate either. Now, with respect to the situation here, uh, when in February we had the first wave of the Russian citizens coming here, these were maybe kind of better um, prepared, like, you know, they took quick decision to leave Russia. Uh, and the Georgian government did not react at all. Uh, we still have the open door policy, uh, no regulations, no visas. And of course, when they uh, decided to take people into the army, that caused a new wave of, uh, I would say, uh, Russian influx into the country. And uh, you have all seen on CNN and BBC the long lines of the uh, cars and citizens trying to get into Georgia. Uh, now, this has major impact on the country. It has impact because of the uh, security concerns, because if we have Russian colonies suddenly spreading in Georgia, uh, this is potentially dangerous because we all know that Putin has uh, in his national security concept, basically the notion that he can use his army to protect the Russian citizens in uh, any other country. So uh, in a sense, he's weaponizing the Russians and therefore it's dangerous for any country, especially for our country, which has 20% already occupied by the Russians. So uh, what's happening is that you can see how you walk in the streets and people are joking that you're, if you hear Georgian, then, you know, it's like, uh, wow, because there are so many Russians walking in the streets of Tbilisi. But uh, it's also economic issue because, uh, first of all, some Russians who are better off, they are uh, basically everything, they have made everything more expensive for the Georgians because they it's like almost inflation, you know, because of the influx. But then, I mean, not all the Russians who are coming here are well off or have a long-term plan. So the question is, what are they going to do, you know, eventually? I mean, how will they live here or how long they plan to live here? Thank you. Davila, do you yet have any problem? I know that you've closed the border with Russia, but nonetheless, you do have Russians living in Lithuania. Um, you have let Russians in over a period of time. Uh, what is your perspective on the influx of Russians and should they be stopped or should you accept them? We made a decision on the first day of uh, uh, this uh, full-scale invasion. I don't say the first day of war because war started in 2014. But on 24th of January, uh, we made a decision that we stop all so-called tourist visas and that we allow uh, only Russians coming on humanitarian uh, reasons uh, and reasons that are approved by our certain services and institutions to enter. Uh, but of, of course, we couldn't stop uh, alone by ourselves Schengen visas. I mean, because if visas are given in an, another country, that was a problem. And we were really working very hard for the European Commission to understand that. 
And actually, um, I'm a fan of Irva Johansson. She understands a lot of the challenges that we are facing living in the current geopolitical and geographical spot. So um, their uh, final uh, explanation was that states have a right to make their own decisions related to uh, ensuring their national uh, security and uh, defense challenges uh, or needs, I'd say defense needs. I think on the way of ensuring that people who just uh, don't want to die in Ukraine but are very happy with Putin's regime do not uh, flood Lithuania. And we are a very small country. So having in mind how many Russians want to avoid service in the army, uh, that could become a very big challenge. But on the other hand, I think that it's good that um, more and more countries understand that and working together and explaining that for the whole European Union, that could be a problem because Ukraine has learned hard way that networks of uh, divergence of agents of Russia were instrumental into uh, reaching certain uh, sometimes temporary victories, but some of the losses that Ukrainians have suffered are still ongoing. And as I said, diversive groups made of Russians who came to the country on different pretexts were instrumental in damaging Ukrainian sovereignty. We have to learn from that. Indeed. Um, Salome, beyond not hearing Georgian on the street, um, what is the daily impact of the war in Georgia? Well, I mean, uh, of course, the impact is serious in terms of, first of all, the public perceptions, because, you know, what the polls show is that over 80% of people in this country, close to 90%, are concerned about their security. And uh, they also perceive the danger, I mean, the source of danger to be Russia. So number one, I would say, is the fear. Fear of uh, war, feeling of insecurity. And I think that uh, it wouldn't be overestimation to say that the majority of the Georgians also feel quite strongly that what happens in Ukraine will determine to a large extent the future of Georgia as well. Uh, that said, I think people are resolved. I mean, the polls show that support for the UN NATO membership is strong. Uh, so the Russians, if they were trying to basically force the Georgians um, and others, you know, to reconsider their choices. Um, that has not happened. In terms of the economy, I think that because Georgia has not introduced any bilateral sanctions with Russia, so trade with Russia is going as basically usual. And uh, what is also our concern is that Georgia might be used as a place to avoid the sanctions, you know, because Together with the Russian citizens, what has increased substantially in this country is the number of the businesses which are registered by the Russian citizens. I see. That's that's um, so sanctions evasion and above all fear is um, what you're talking about. Um, Dovile, is there a daily impact in in Lithuania? Do you feel uh, of the war in Ukraine? Yes. Oh yes, of course. First of all, I, I think that. Uh, our society has, uh, like for decades, uh, not been as united and strong together. Because when we were fighting for our independence, although um, after our resistance was eradicated after the occupation, uh, so until the uh, 90s, uh, we were 
simply trying peacefully to regain our independence. So we had the peaceful revolution. But then, uh, I mean, like, well, everyone was doing, uh, living their lives, were, were busy with their lives and etc. But when the 24th of February hit us, on the same day, unity was just like in 1990. Everyone was doing what they could. And I mean, there was no difference between parties in the parliament. I mean, I'm social democrat and uh, one of the leadership of social democratic party. We were standing together with conservatives, although usually we, well, cut each other's throat when we talk about social or economic policy, but it wasn't important. What was important is Ukraine and doing whatever we can. So there were resolutions, legislative pieces. There were a lot of uh, efforts uh, in uh, pushing better sanction packages, the harsher ones, the ones that would actually uh, hurt the aggressor. At the same time, our society has never donated so much for any cause in the history of Lithuania. And also we had, I think, 50 or 60,000 officially registered Ukrainian refugees, but we know that the number was much bigger because almost every one of us uh, was taking or is still taking care of one or more Ukrainian families. We were taking care of my family uh, of two Ukrainian families. So uh, I mean that uh, we understand, first of all, that, well, politicians at least understand that geopolitically, the outcome of the war in Ukraine will decide what happens in the whole region. And yes, of course, Sakartvelo, uh, I mean, Georgia, and what will happen with Baltic states, uh, and I mean, talking about our security and how far will the empire go. But also looking globally, and I'm also vice chair of uh, uh, relations with Taiwan group, we all understand, I think, uh, well, at least uh, for the last six months, it dawned on most politicians in the world that outcome of war in Ukraine will decide the global conflict between United States and People's Republic of China. So that means that Ukraine is basically a solution or a damnation. And if we are able to stand together, if we are able to show that we can be efficient together in defending our freedom, in stopping that bloody empire, then we can ensure some safety for the coming decade or two. If we can't, then, I mean, I'm worried about my children. So that's the situation. And of course, uh, the energy crisis, the uh, uh, inflation, everything. But most of our society understands that it is the price that we are paying because of Russian aggression. And then until we win this war, we will have to deal with those shortcomings and we will survive. So there is a lot of daily challenges. And some populists, I mean, what a country in democracy, especially without populists, are using that, uh, you know, to, um, to kind of raise chaos in society and etc. And we have uh, interested groups that became very active and that are uh, even sending some, I'm sorry for the word, but imbeciles to uh, to show support to Russia and to explain that it's not good to be angry at your neighbor and etc. So everything, daily life, economics, energy, legislation, civil society initiatives and finances and everything. We are living in this every day. It sounds like a very intense experience on both sides of, of Ukraine. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, Salome, do you feel that if you'd been in NATO 
and the EU, you'd be in a different position now? No doubt. Uh, not only that, but I think that, again, if you look back at the recent history, uh, this once again uh, is showing that, uh, let's be very open, 2008 Bucharest summit decision, uh, which um, declared that Georgia and Ukraine will become members of NATO, but did not grant either of these countries uh, the membership action plan was a mistake, you know, quite honestly, because um, uh, if we were granted MAP, uh, it would have sent a quite clear signal that uh, future of these countries in NATO is irreversible. And uh, I think that uh, Putin read this message uh, as basically a message saying, he can still do something to prevent this decision from ever being realized. And that was the trigger of 2008 decision to um, attack my country. Uh, and then followed by, um, you know, what happened in, uh, in Ukraine, uh, both when they tried to stop them from signing the association agreement with the, uh, the EU, and then 2014, and then 2000. Um, 22. So our message with the West has always been make our future irreversible. And if you take the example of the Baltic countries, of course, we all understand it was different reality in the 90s and a different world. But, you know, the Russians were not willing to accept uh, independent Lithuania, member of the NATO and the, the EU and Estonia or Latvia or, you know, uh, Central and Eastern Europe. But once they uh, kind of realized that it was something that they had to live with, well, I mean, they uh, had to somehow live with that. And in our case, I think that the West has um, made a mistake uh, when we were not granted the same opportunity. And I hope that this is not repeated uh, again uh, now. Uh, so I welcome very much the decision of the European Union to grant the candidacy to Ukraine and Moldova. It's unfortunate that Georgia didn't make it this time, uh, but this is mostly due to the government, which runs this country right now, which basically undermined our chances. But uh, at least we were given the perspective. Davila, do you agree? And what is the difference as far as you're concerned of your country being in the EU-NATO? Uh, well, it's crucial difference. I'd say that it's life-changing. And we have heard also in the beginning of the process that we will never be members of NATO. But I think uh, the main mistake, and uh, it's still ongoing, at least partly, is that some, um, some states, especially the big players, still consider that our decisions can escalate Russia. It's never like that. You can only de-escalate by drawing firm red lines because the bully has psychology of a street uh, fighter. I don't know how to say it in English, but you know what I mean? They provoke fights. They invent pretexts for aggression. And they are the proactive agent in hostility and aggression. So if anyone uh, thinks that if we make a compromise, if we concede, if we agree to withdraw our lines, our borders, our values, then bully will concede. That's 
not only naive, it's simply damaging and stupid. So that's what we have been telling for years. And now we are being heard, but it's still the process that is ongoing, as I said. So I am sure that that's my personal opinion. Well, not, I'm not alone thinking like that, but I cannot say that it's an official position of um, our state. It hasn't been expressed in a resolution yet that if Ukraine would have been admitted to NATO, there wouldn't be a war there today because uh, United States Army, and this is the biggest uh, team member in NATO compared to Russian Army, we all know what that is and what that means. So in this sense, if we could have helped the whole region to reach this level of security and we could have Ukraine and Georgia and Moldova in NATO, that would be a completely different game. And Russia wouldn't have been able to create frozen conflict over the area. So in that sense, I'm sorry to be frank, but it's also guilt and responsibility of the uh, big Western politicians, including Madam Angela Merkel, uh, what we thought was pragmatism was cynicism, which paved the way for Russian empire spread all over our lands. That is strong words from you. I would play devil's advocate slightly and say, is it possible to think about peace and war at the same time? Um, and by that, I mean that Europe is historically the most violent continent ever. It's inflicted itself upon every single other continent in the world over history. And while it likes to think that it brought liberalism and democracy, it also brought a huge amount of violence and death and destruction. And um, it committed to peace. It committed to peace after the Second World War. Um, it committed to peace after the Cold War. In a sense, it willingly moved away from war. Um, it went into the business of being um, economically very viable and it has helped countries such as the Baltic countries and also Georgia in its way um, to, to rise above. Um, I take on board a lot of what you say about certain politicians, but equally, would it have been possible to have the same EU, the EU focused upon peace and prosperity while it's also preparing for war? Well, yes it would have been uh, a very different picture. And I am sure we wouldn't have uh, had this necessity to prepare for war. Because what happened is, uh, and also, let's be honest, there was a discrimination of the states that were more worth to become members of the elite club and states that were less worth. And also, let's be honest, that in the beginning, European Union also was two-speed union. And we have felt that very acutely, and it was painful. And I think that the process of learning, which brought, for example, Germany, Nazi Germany, brought to be the most peaceful country in Europe, which was afraid even to send arms to Ukraine, and is now realizing that sometimes it's actually true. If you want to ensure peace, you have to prepare for war, and they are restoring their Bundeswehr, they are trying to help Ukraine, they are stationing brigade in Lithuania. But I mean, their defeat was the like turning point that helped them change. You need a period, a prolonged period of peace in order to make that happen. You can't just do that and say, okay, overnight, we're still going to be warlike and we're going to be contrite and we're going to do peace. It doesn't but, work that way. 
But Ilana, that's what I'm saying, that in this situation, uh, what we allowed Russia to continue its invasions for 30 years since we become, for example, independent. I mean, I'm not talking about 300 years of that empire, genocidal empire, actually, just, you know, spreading around and not even being recognized as genocidal empire. We recognized Nazi crimes, even though Soviets killed 37 million of people, and it was never even recognized. But now when we look at from the 90s, three decades, seven invasions, all of them were beneficial to Russia. So what I mean is, yes, I think that there could have been more responsibility and more strategic thinking, what it could mean for the region, and we wouldn't have war because for Russia, there couldn't have been so much money made on European Union because money fuels the war machine. And secondly, what I think is now happening, and that's why we are really grateful, that West is understanding that there is no West and East. There is democracy versus autocracy. And that's why, why I said we are more united than ever. And that may be Titan Vendor, not only for Germans, but a turning point for the whole world globally, not only for Europe. If I may come in on this, um, I think that, um, uh, you know, the, if we look at, uh, of course, European Union was constructed as the project of peace and prosperity. Uh, but I think that uh, we have to remember that in order for any player in the international uh, you know, stage, basically, uh, for you to protect your interests, if those interests are protecting peace and prosperity and continuing, basically, you know, your development, you need to uh, have the policies which are relevant to the realities that you are facing. I mean, in a sense, I would advocate for a realism, uh, you know, I guess, you know, in, in, in international relations uh, and, uh, and strategic thinking of the European Union. And I think that, um, quite honestly, not only the Euro European Union, but if we look at the West and if we look at the United States and the European Union together, uh, I think the strategic mistake, quite honestly, which was uh, made by the West was when they assumed uh, that they could continue with the um, policy towards Russia oriented towards, you know, cooperation or finding the, the points of mutual interest, et cetera, et cetera, when Russia was not operating in this mode for a long time, right? So I think that um, ultimately the mistakes were due to the fact that the assumptions on which the foreign policy uh, towards Russia was built were, I mean, they were not, they didn't prove right. They didn't prove correct. And they I never mean, changed. And they never changed after 2008 war. I cannot tell you how many conversations I have had in Brussels, how many international forums I have addressed and other people from my country and also our friends from the Baltic countries saying, you cannot continue be de being dependent on, on Russia for your energy. It's dangerous. It is dangerous, you know. And the arguments that we heard back was, well, even during the Soviet times, European Union had good cooperation on the energy field with the Soviet Union. So, you know, we have the relevant experience. 
Well, you know, I'm sorry, but in a sense, what has happened, the free world has funded Putin's war machine over, you know, decades, basically. And uh, yeah, I mean, I will just wrap up with that. You know, it was time to get realist. And if there was no clarity on this before 2008 war, that war should have made that clear for everyone. Sorry, but we are, I think, allowed to say that. (laughs) Absolutely allowed to say that. Ladies, fascinating conversation and we're moving towards its end. But very briefly, how does the war end? Well, in my opinion, the ideal scenario would be if uh, Russia was defeated like Germany was, of course, without any steps that were taken, like bombing of Dresden and etc., which was horrifying, and we should never repeat that. But I mean, if they would lose that war in Ukraine, and if uh, in the international tribunal, their crimes would be for the first time globally recognized, that I think could inspire change in the society itself. That's the ideal. Probably they will try to push however much they can. They will try to freeze the conflict. And our biggest hope is that in the end, more pragmatic people in Kremlin will probably try openly saying to pretend that they are changing their position that they will find a pretext to probably withdraw and then get ready for the next attack. And if we fail with international tribunal, then in five years, well, mostly five, seven years, we will have the next wave. So it's up for us not only to defend Ukraine, but also to ensure that international responsibility for the war crimes, for the genocide, which is ongoing now in Ukraine, with half a million people, children uh, kidnapped from Ukraine, that they should answer for. And that, I think, would inevitably change international reputation of Russia and teach all of us a good lesson. You cannot have business with genocidal murderer. Uh, yes, I, I agree with that. And I uh, would, uh, what I can tell you is that my largest concern, uh, my biggest concern is that uh, we, we saw what happened in 2008, basically, when, um, you know, the West has decided to uh, somehow close the chapter, you know, and close the chapter at the expense uh, I'm sorry to say of uh, my country because you know we have lost 20, control over 20 percent of our territories and uh, my concern is that uh, if the if somebody decides that now is time to push Ukraine now or later at some point for some settled outcome of this war which will not um, be used as an opportunity to change the power structure in Moscow. Um, And then, you know, from that, the West will decide to somehow start slowly going back to business as usual. That's my fear. That's my danger. That's what I hope will not happen. Uh, What I would ideally want to happen is, of course, that the Western policy, uh, just like it happened with the Cold War, continues to the point until the regime crumbles in Russia. Uh, And uh, I mean, quite honestly, I I have said it many times and I will repeat it that in the end, the world will be safe when Russia is a different country, you know, when, when it has a different reality in Russia. 
And I think that the West has wasted maybe much time in uh, in achieving that outcome, difficult, difficult outcome. But, uh, you know, that should be the goal pursued together with uh, extending the security belt uh, of the UN NATO membership to our countries. Uh, and by that, uh, pushing Russia back, you know, just not giving up to Russia. I think that that will be the uh, outcome that I certainly hope for because the alternative is just too scary for me and for everyone else who wants to live in the free world, but live in his or her own country. And if we're from Georgia, Ukraine, or the Baltic countries. Well, I don't think that could be put much clearer. And um, you've both put your points across extremely well. Thank you. That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Processes. Thank you so much to our guests, Saloma Samadashvili and Dovile Shakelene. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Please continue the discussion with us at Wise Brussels on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And if you haven't done it yet, subscribe to Wise Brussels Voices and listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast. And learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wisebrussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel, together with Florence Ferrando. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for more great conversations. <laughs>